welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Uh, today, the ongoing crisis in Haiti following the assassination of the U.S.-backed president, Jovenel Moïse. We speak with David Commission, who is the Barbados ambassador to CARICOM, which are the Caribbean states. Uh, also, of course, our panelists will weigh in. And President Biden sets the withdrawal date of U.S. troops from Afghanistan and the climate crisis from the heat dome across the western states uh, to the collapse of the condo tower built on a barrier reef in Florida to rising sea levels. How seriously are we all taking it? Our panelists are Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policy and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. An Afghan official and Iranian media say the Taliban have taken control of another one of Afghanistan's key border crossings, this time with Iran. It's the third border crossing the Taliban have seized in the past week after previously taking crossings with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Recent Taliban wins come as U.S. troops complete their pullout from Afghanistan. Their most significant gains have been in the North, a traditional stronghold of U.S. allied warlords. President Biden yesterday vigorously defended the U.S. pullout. Christina Onestead filed this report. We're ending America's longest war. President Joe Biden says the U.S. has accomplished what it set out to do long ago. The United States did what we went to do in Afghanistan to get the terrorists to attack us on 9-11 and deliver justice to Osama bin Laden. Biden says children of parents who fought in Afghanistan are also fighting in the country some 20 years later. And it's time to put an end to the intergenerational fight. I will not send another generation of Americans to war in Afghanistan with no reasonable expectation of achieving a different outcome. Biden also pledged to support the thousands of Afghans who have helped the U.S. military as translators, drivers, and in other jobs. According to a report from the Cost of War Project at Brown University earlier this year, the U.S. Special Immigrant Visa Program is backlogged by an estimated 18,800 applicants in Afghanistan and Iraq. According to the Cost of War Project, 241,000 people have died as a direct result of the war. That does not include deaths caused by disease, loss of access to food, water, or infrastructure. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for KPFA. Haitian authorities say two Haitian Americans and 26 Colombians were part of the unit that assassinated Haitian President Jovenel Moise. Haitian police said they've arrested 17 people so far, are seeking eight suspects. Three others were killed by police. Colombia says at least six of those arrested are former members of its armed forces. Many Haitians are questioning the government's account. They wonder how the sophisticated attackers described by police could penetrate Moise's home, security detail, and panic room 
and escape unharmed, but then be caught without planning a successful getaway. President Biden and Vice President Harris met with civil rights leaders at the White House yesterday amid growing complaints that his administration and congressional Democrats aren't doing enough to push back against draconian restrictions on voting Republican-backed states have enacted. The meeting took place as Texas lawmakers began a special session aimed at adopting new laws restricting voting. During the meeting, Biden and Harris assured civil rights leaders they would push Congress to pass voting rights legislation while doing everything within the administration's power to secure full voter participation. Any such federal measure will have to overcome a Republican filibuster in the Senate. Vice President Harris followed the meeting with an address on civil rights at Howard University. Mary Sherman reports. Vice President Kamala Harris is going on the offense to protect voting rights, announcing a $25 million expansion of the Democratic National Committee's I Will Vote initiative. Your vote matters. Your vote is your power. Harris said there's a lot of work to do before the 2022 midterms to counter voter suppression efforts. This is not only about a national election. This is also about state and local elections. It's about who's going to be your sheriff or your mayor or your school board member. 17 states have enacted voting reform laws this year, which Republicans contend are needed to strengthen election integrity. Civil rights groups called for the preservation of voting rights at a rally outside the Texas State House. Measures now under consideration in a special session would ban curbside voting and straight ticket voting and give new powers to poll watchers. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. California Governor Gavin Newsom is asking people and businesses to voluntarily cut their water usage by 15 percent amid the state's worsening drought. California's most important reservoirs will likely reach historic lows later this year. A hot weekend in the forecast. Weather forecasters warn much of the state could see triple-digit weekend highs. Aftershocks are expected for days following yesterday's magnitude 6 earthquake in the eastern Sierra Nevada south of Lake Tahoe. The earthquake was felt across hundreds of miles in California and Nevada. Pfizer says it's about to seek U.S. authorization for a third dose of its COVID-19 vaccine. But U.S. health officials say a booster isn't needed yet. The company says another shot could dramatically boost immunity and maybe help against infection from the Delta variant. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. In the early morning hours of Wednesday, July 7th, Haitian President Jovenel Moïse was assassinated during an attack on his private residence. His wife was injured and is now hospitalized in Miami. Let's go to a clip from the Washington Post. Haiti police have killed four people suspected in the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse, the police chief announced Wednesday, and two more have been arrested. The government has declared a two-week state of emergency as it chases down the killers who shot Moïse dead in his home in Port-au-Prince overnight. Haiti police chief Leon Charles said Wednesday they had blocked the assassins as they were leaving the crime scene and had been locked in a standoff with them since. Moise's wife, Martine, was also shot and severely wounded and has received medical treatment. Haiti's ambassador to the United States told Reuters the gunmen were masquerading as U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration agents, a move that would likely have helped them gain entry to Moise's guarded residence. Interim Prime Minister Claude Joseph has called for calm across the country, the poorest nation in the Americas. 
Bustling streets were deserted Wednesday as vehicles transporting Moise's body to the morgue were rerouted due to gunshots and roadblocks. Moise's assassination came amid calls for his resignation over corruption allegations, economic mismanagement, and his tightening grip on power. The nation of 11 million has grappled with political unrest for decades and faces a surge in gang violence and a growing humanitarian crisis. The United States, Haiti's top aid donor, was quick to condemn Moise's assassination and vowed to promote peace and security in the region. Meanwhile, the Dominican Republic closed the border it shares with Haiti in anticipation of violent unrest. The UN Security Council is set to evaluate the situation in a closed-door meeting on Thursday. All righty, and this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And uh, Haiti has been enveloped by profound political uncertainty, and the streets of the capital of Port-au-Prince have emptied as many residents have chosen to stay home. There were hints on Thursday of a power struggle prompted by the killing who had been just hours away from installing a new prime minister when he was murdered. Ariel Henry, who had been announced as Haiti's incoming prime minister on Monday, but had not yet to take office, uh, told the press he was grateful to the outgoing prime minister, Claude Joseph, for his work, but added, in my opinion, he is no longer the prime minister. Now, before we welcome our panelists here, for our weekly roundtable. I would like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, uh, David Comision. David is Barbados's ambassador to the Caribbean community, or CARICOM. He's also active in the Caribbean Pan-African Network. He's an attorney, writer, and political activist. He's the author of the 2013 book, It's the Healing of the Nation, The Case for Reparations in an Era of Recession and Recolonization. He's also the author of Marching Down the Wide Streets of Tomorrow, Emancipation Essays and Speeches, published in 2008. David, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. Pleasure to be here. All righty. So, David, a terrible time we're, we're in now. Uh, first off, all of our condolences uh, as the island of Barbados is recovering from its first hit of a hurricane in 66 years. Hurricane Elson, thank you for being in our show uh, just earlier this week about um, Hurricane Elsa. But now we have this crisis in Haiti, and uh, CARICOM just recently, right issued a statement following a report they did on Haiti. Before we get to CARICOM's response to the assassination, can you fill us in? Can you give us any details on what CARICOM had to say in its report about the situation in Haiti? This is before the assassination. David Commission. Well, Margaret, I was one of the four members of the CARICOM expert group that met with, that spoke to um, a whole range of persons in Haiti um, in terms of putting together that report. So the report was um, very clear, very accurate in describing the political, constitutional, humanitarian, and security crisis in Haiti. And um, the report ended by 
making certain recommendations to CARICOM that CARICOM needed um, to get involved, needed to offer its, its good offices, and that um, all of the relevant CARICOM institutions um, need to be deployed um, in, in, in assisting Haiti. So the, the report um, was, was very clear that, you know, this was a very serious crisis, that there were armed gangs. But you know something, Margaret? In, in, in none of the discussions that we had with um, Haitian activists, opposition people, civil society people, uh, as opposed as they were to President Maurice, um, no, one, no one mentioned the possibility of Maurice being assassinated. So in a sense, the assassination kind of really came out of the blue. I mean, they, they all acknowledged the great crisis. There was a lot of criticism of, of President Maurice, but not a single person that we interviewed uh, mentioned the possibility of the president being being assassinated. And um, so, you know, CARICOM made a very important, the CARICOM heads of government, they met in emergency session right after the news of Moise's assassination, and they issued a very important statement. And there's a particular paragraph in that statement that we need to pay attention to, and, and this is the paragraph. It says, in light of Haiti's membership of CARICOM and the family ties that bind the people of Haiti and CARICOM together, CARICOM expresses its willingness to play a lead role in facilitating a process of national dialogue and negotiation to help the Haitian people and their institutions to craft an indigenous solution to the crisis, end of quote. Now, I think that's a very important statement. I think it, it represents a kind of psychological breakthrough. Where here, here you have the CARICOM heads of government acknowledging that the people of Haiti are our kith and kin, that, that they are our family, and therefore, our role must not be to support somebody else. Our role must be to lead a, um, a process of national dialogue and negotiation. Um, what, what we need to see now is how will the Haitian society respond to this offer that CARICOM has put on the table. Um, it, it, over the past two and a half years, CARICOM has requested the government of Haiti, the administration of President Moïse, to, to, to come. CARICOM has said over and over again, we want to come and help to sort out this crisis. We want to send a fact-finding team so that we can get a better insight into what is happening. And um, Moïse's administration never responded favorably. They were always looking north the United States of America, the government of the USA, the OAS, but nev seemingly never towards um, their Caribbean brothers and sisters, CARICOM. So it is left to be seen now how not simply the administration, but the civil society organizations, the people of Haiti, what will be the response to this CARICOM offer? 
Right, and that that remains to be seen. And of course, uh, CARICOM also issued a statement uh, following the assassination of of Jovenel Jovenel Moise and the injury of his wife. Uh, But David, we are going to continue to be in touch about CARICOM's work in relation to Haiti. And at this point, no one really knows what's going to happen. There seems to be a constitutional crisis where you have two men claiming to be in charge of the country. right now, the prime minister who was in place, as well as the prime minister that uh, had been announced by Jovenel Moïse to be put in place this week. So, David, I'm sure we'll be back in touch with you uh, to uh, discuss further events as they develop in Haiti and as they affect the entire region. So we appreciate you and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Margaret. My pleasure. I'm I'm always here. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Okay. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now uh, we're discussing, we're going to kick off our weekly roundtable with what's happening on the ground in Haiti. Now, Jovenel Moise was a U.S.-backed former banana exporter from the private sector. He had been accused of rampant corruption and of human rights abuses. His assassination takes place within the context of longstanding U.S support for right-wing dictators, friendly to Washington and Wall Street. It also forms part of the long history of U.S. destabilization in Haiti and in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, and indeed in other parts of the world. Uh, Former President Jean-Bertrand Aristide, for example, became Haiti's first democratically elected president in February 1991 until September 1991 U.S.-backed military coup. And then in 2004, after Aristide came back into office, he was once again ousted in another coup after right-wing ex- Army paramilitaries invaded the country from across the Dominican the uh, border, and the United States helped to orchestrate this coup against him. And indeed, um, he, President Aristide, and his wife, his family were kidnapped and forced into exile in the Central African Republic. And it took Congresswoman Maxine Waters to go to the Central African Republic to make sure that the Aristides were going to be safe and were going to be allowed to leave. And in the end, uh, after a short stay in Jamaica, and there was a lot of pressure from the United States for President Aristide not to stay there, um, he was in exile in South Africa. Now, the tactics that were used to remove President Aristide from power twice are Well, it's a very, very similar playbook um, that was used, for example, against the Honduran president, uh, again democratically elected, Manuel Zelaya in 2009. The destabilization efforts uh, in Venezuela under President Hugo Chavez, ongoing under President um, Evo uh, Morales. And they even go back as far as 1956 in Guatemala during the CIA coup uh, there. And in 1973, with the bloody military coup against uh, Salvador Allende uh, in Chile that installed the fascist dictator Augusto Pinochet. So the United States also played a, a role in the violent 1983 coup against Grenada Prime Minister Maurice Bishop, after which the U.S. Uh, troops invaded the nation. So uh, setting this stage here to uh, welcome 
our panelists uh, to dig uh, deep into all of this. And I'd like to uh, welcome uh, first uh, Laura Carlson, is, who is the director of the Americas program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy in Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for, for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. And Jackie Gold. Thank you, Laura. Jackie Goldberg is a governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg has previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He is also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. He's also written on Haiti. Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting All righty. So let's get uh, right into it here. Uh, Laura Carlson, we're going to start with you because, uh, you know, not that a lot of people on the ground were surprised about uh, what happened but in Haiti. But nevertheless, it was indeed surprising and very shocking that uh, the way that Jovenel Moïse was taken out. And of course, now there's a lot of speculation about who uh, really hired the heavily armed commando unit that uh, assassinated Jovenel Moïse. Uh, your response to this, because it, it, it does seem, we don't know, and we may never know who really is responsible for this assassination, but we know that the United States, since the Haitian Revolution, has been in Haiti destabilizing, and the other examples that have given of uh, U.S. efforts to destabilize or regime change throughout the region. Uh, Laura Carlson, your thoughts on all this? Yes. Well, that was an excellent introduction, especially with all the history, because I think that it's all very involved in trying to figure out what happens, what's going on right now. I mean, this is a bizarre story. It really doesn't make sense on the surface of it, and I think it's important that the previous speaker mentioned that no one ever mentioned it as a possibility or even, you know, on the horizon when they were discussing the internal dynamics of Haiti, very complicated, very unstable. And yet that is another indication that this comes from the top down. This is a global geopolitical move, but we still don't know from where or how. To add to what you've already mentioned about Jovenel Moshe, it's important to say he was an illegal president as well. He was, uh, and this is not a justification, of course, everyone universally condemns the assassination as we would any assassination. He was elected with 10% of the vote. He was supported by the United States and the Organization of American States. He was attempting to stay in power until 2026. 
and he actually had his legal mandate ran out last February. In the midst of all that, he's been you know, accused of stealing public funds, of killing opponents, of repressing protests, which you've covered widely in Sojourner Truth, defining protesters as terrorists. So then we have this assassination, which, first of all, there's a universal belief that this is an inside job in some ways because he had so much security. And then there's then the story is that they actually cornered the assassins, which they're numbering at over 30, and that there was a standoff here. They're also reporting that they tried to get into the Taiwan embassy there and that they were dressed as DEA agents. Among the people that they've been able to identify and capture, they have uh, two Haitian Americans and they also have 26 Colombians. So it's bizarre. It's, there's no other word for it. I actually am in Colombia right now, uh, and it's a huge news. We are in a human rights mission because these people, the Colombians that are captured associated to this assassination, are a number of them that they've been able to identify so far are ex-military. And uh, so there have been, there's been many questions directed toward the military about what they're doing as mercenaries in foreign countries. And we're not just talking about Haiti and this incident. And then it turns out also that a number of them are uh, from a special unit that's called the um, Anti-Urban Terrorism Unit who were trained at the School of the Americas in the United States. Remember that under Plan Colombia, and historically, the Colombian military is trained by the United States and has one of the closest alliances of any other military in the world with the United States. So these are the linkages that we're beginning to see in this case, and yet the, the end game is not clear because, of course, as you mentioned, Moise was an ally of the United States. He was he was also heavily promoted and sustained by Luis Almagro in the Organization of American States, a clear ally of the United States, especially of Trump as well. So we have uh, many people, especially the Black Alliance for Peace, says that they smell a rat here. You know, something is not right about the story that we're being told. But in any case, it's clear that this is a result of the military complex and interventionary history that the United States has, that something's going on in terms of the very high up geopolitical interest that's leaving a huge, much more profound crisis in Haiti than we had before, a country with no vaccines, a country with a food crisis, a country with high levels of violence uh, that will be exacerbated by the instability. There's calls now in this context that the United States has to move in. That's highly suspicious. This is precisely the time to stay out. The United States intervention in Haiti has never been on the side of democracy. It has not produced, even under the guise of humanitarian efforts, it has not alleviated the situation for the Haitian people, but completely the contrary. And so I would totally agree with the previous speaker that what need, what's needed is a national, regionally supported solution that lets, finally, the Haitian people decide their future. Yes, thank you, uh, Laura Carlson. And, and Jackie Goldberg, uh, your thoughts here. I mean, nobody knows who 
played a had a hand in what happened. Um, the uh, prime minister who who is now saying he's in charge, he was supposed to be the outgoing prime minister, have implied that Jovenel Moise, in addition to the people on the street who were protesting his dictatorship and his Duvalierist policies um, and massacres of his own people, etc., are saying that among the oligarchs, he had also recently uh, made uh, some enemies by stepping a bit on their toes and, and trying for him and his wife to actually get in on some kind of business deal. So, I mean, there are all kinds of possibilities here. But Jackie Goldberg, that being the case, the United States has intervened in Haiti since really the Haitian revolution when the U.S. started an economic boycott against it. And this has continued decade after decade after decade. And the context also of the playbook of the United States uh, being involved in destabilizations, regime change, etc. Now, it's very well may not be the case in Haiti. Moise was an ally of the United States, but who knows? Because this business could get very, very dirty indeed. Jackie, Goldberg, your thoughts on all this? Well, you know, I think the context that I look all of this into is the Monroe Doctrine. Because I think there's the beginning of the United States publicly stating to the world that where the, as they called them, the two Americas, meaning North and South America, were concerned, the United States told Europe at the time the only one that would be involved, that they were not allowed to have colonies uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, that doctrine led to the excuse for the United States to intervene whenever it felt like it and continuously in Haitian politics. I think people also don't all realize the whole role that France played. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the famous Toussaint Louverture, who led a wonderful, extraordinarily successful revolution, uh, first helped kick out the Spanish and the English from Haiti, and then later uh, was able to get the French to be kicked out. But when they kicked the French out, in 1804, you have back in 1825, France coming with all of its warships and says to Haiti, really extorted money from them, and said, here's the, the, the history that no one believes, that they, uh, the Haitian people had to pay France for the loss of slaves. Their property was stolen, you see, by independence, and so they had to pay a debt in addition to which, by the way, uh, they also were told uh, that that debt would be the equivalent today of about uh, $21 billion. And the reason that this all happens is because Haiti had been, at the time of the early 1800s, the most successful European colony in the Western Hemisphere in terms of the Caribbean. It was a rich country that had great exports. It was doing very well economically. Uh, the country seemed to be pretty much at peace, and then, of course, all of the interventions begin. Uh, so the United States in 1804, under Thomas Jefferson, decides, well, you know, this is not such a good thing. We have slaves. We don't want this to get too carried away. So he begins this economic boycott. All I'm really trying to say is, is that the United States has not been a partner with Haiti. It has been an opponent to democracy in Haiti. The whole ousting of a popularly elected priest who was the only and first democratic person, uh, a democratic election in Haiti, uh, and all of the United States' support for the Duvaliers, getting rid of them. And I mean, you know, 
it's the thing that I worry about is is that there are no elected officials that are properly elected in the entire country right now. There are only ten senators. There are no people in Parliament because the uh, assa- recently assassinated president refused to hold parliamentary elections. The usually in Haiti, when something bad really happens, they go to a a Supreme Court judge, but the chief of the Justice of the Haitian Supreme Court just died of COVID-19 because COVID-19 is rampant in Haiti. So, you know, what you have is a country that has been devastated by events that were external to it, uh, and that this is, I think, external to it as well. I think there were insiders and outsiders that participated together, but I agree with Laura. We don't know to what end, uh, in what direction. We don't. We know that this president that was assassinated was not popular, but we don't believe the appointees, either the current one or the the one that says, oh, I'm the one that's the prime minister. We don't think any of them are really interested in helping the people. So this is a situation which has is fraught with danger for the people who live in Haiti, but it is also fraught with danger because the United States will not give up its role of deciding that it can tell people what kind of country they can have, and if we don't like the kind of country you chose, kind of democracy or lack of democracy you chose, well, we're going to intervene. That has not stopped. I don't think it'll stop now. Right. And uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, we're going to have you weigh in. And before we do that, though, let's get a short clip on the power vacuum uh, now in Haiti. And the prime minister who says he's in charge has called for a state of siege, which is of concern to a growing number of people. Let's go to that clip now. Haiti is a country on the edge of crisis. The assassination of President Jovenel Moïse has pushed the country from the peril of a weak government to what is now a major power vacuum. Immediately following the president's death, acting Prime Minister Claude Joseph assumed leadership. He announced a nationwide state of siege, declared martial law and closed Haiti's borders, saying he did not want the country to plunge into chaos. But some would argue the country is already in chaos. The president of the Supreme Court would normally be next in line and become interim president, but he recently died of COVID-19. Joseph was never confirmed by parliament, which is effectively defunct, not having been in session since last year. On Monday, President Moïse had appointed neurosurgeon Ariel Henry to replace Joseph. But Moïse was killed before Henry could be sworn in. Now Henri is also claiming to be Haiti's rightful prime minister, adding to the uncertainty is if or when Haiti will hold elections. A constitutional referendum postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic still hasn't taken place, but acting Prime Minister Joseph tells CNN he still plans to hold elections. I'm not in command for a long time. Uh, The constitution is clear. I have to... uh, organize elections and actually pass the power to uh, someone else who is elected. Haiti's political turmoil comes at a time of deepening economic and humanitarian woes brought on partly by the coronavirus pandemic. COVID infections continue to rise and no vaccines are yet available. (coughs) Gang violence in recent weeks has displaced thousands of people, according to the United Nations. High inflation has fueled food insecurity, with 60% of the country living in poverty, according to the World Bank. 
Haiti has been under siege for two years at least uh, with total chaos, a lack of government, lack of responsibility, lack of forces of order, kidnappings, murders. It's just been a crazy time for Haiti. It's the latest chapter for a country with a turbulent history. The impoverished Caribbean nation faces a host of problems. Two men claim to be in power, yet it remains to be seen whether anyone has control. All righty. So uh, there you go, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. And uh, a power struggle going on, clearly, between the man who is now the prime minister and the incoming prime minister. But Dr. Horn, the movement on the ground and actually the crisis in Haiti, unlike what the woman who spoke in the clip, uh, this has been going on since 2004, since that U.S.-backed coup against President Aristide, because the movement on the ground, they have always, always been working to reverse uh, that coup and to move uh, towards democracy. But uh, having elections within this atmosphere and also this new constitution, which would bring back the Duvalier type constitution to Haiti that um, people had managed to get rid of, they are really key factors. And we may never know um, the reason behind this particular assassination attempt, but it does seem now as though there is a full press ahead to bypass the demands of the movement and to move ahead with an election that the country is clearly not prepared for, as well as to install this new uh, constitution. And who has to gain by these elections and the new constitution would be the U.S. and the core group, because they have a, a real interest in getting their own person in charge of Haiti, which has been the the playbook of the United States, it seems, since the, the Haitian Revolution. Dr. Horn, your thoughts on all this? Well, I would echo the comment by the Barbadian ambassador to CARICOM with regard to the Caribbean neighbors playing the lead role with regard to Haiti, not at the friendly amendments that I would like to see a government that has proven that it can stand up to U.S. imperialism play the leading role. I'm speaking of the government headquartered in Havana, Cuba. Because I'm afraid to say that the Organization of American States and even the United Nations Security Council, uh, they have not bathed themselves in glory in recent years with regard to their uh, maladministration and mismanagement in Haiti, uh, going back to the so-called U.N. peacekeepers who left in their wake not only a cholera epidemic, but various forms of sexual misconduct that are still continuing to ricochet around the island. And... When there is this CARICOM delegation that is formed, I would hope that they would look more carefully at this assassination, because I agree with Black Alliance for Peace that I, I smell a rat. If you look at the videos that have emerged, you see five or six vehicles uh, moving away from Mr. Uh, the president's uh, assassination, and then you can fairly conclude that there were about 25 to 30 assailants involved, and yet our Haitian friends tell us that the president had been guarded by about 100 different individuals. And in the wake of all this shooting, there was only one death, that is to say the president. So there's something awry with regard to that. I think that that has led to these suspicions that this might have had some sort of inside cooperation 
But we'll never know unless the CARICOM can do a thorough investigation. Likewise, I agree with those who say that this U.S. interference in Haiti is nothing new. Uh, you mentioned that I wrote this book on the U.S. reaction to the Haitian Revolution. And from September 1791, a few weeks after unrest erupted on the island that led to a revolution culminating in 1804, but in September 1791, George Washington himself was running around with his hair on fire because they recognized that a revolt of the enslaved in the Caribbean would have reverberations in North America, and that it did. Uh, there's a clear connection between slave revolts in the Caribbean and in Virginia in 1800, in Louisiana 1811, in South Carolina 1821, and even the grandest of them all, Nat Turner's slave revolt in Virginia in, 17, uh, in 1831, because it was recognized that the Haitian Revolution upset the apple cart of slavery. It led to a general crisis of the entire slave system in the Americas that could only be resolved with its collapse which it did in North America in 1865. And with the elimination of slavery, you saw advancements by the entire working class, not least in the United States, to struggle for an eight-hour day. And so we, who work for a living in the United States, owe an immense, enormous debt of gratitude to Haiti that can never be repaid. And I should mention in closing that the last assassination of a Haitian leader took place in 1915, and that became the excuse for an almost two decades long U.S. occupation of Haiti, and we should not allow history to repeat itself. Absolutely. On that note, thank you, Dr. Horn. We are going to take actually a late station break uh, today. When we return, we're going to continue with our panelists for our weekly roundtable, and we'll be talking about Afghanistan. Uh, President Biden has set the withdrawal date, and also um, climate change. Are we paying sufficient attention? There's a lot going on, a lot of people impacted. Stay with us. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Beautiful, beautiful. The Sky is Crying by Gary B.B. Coleman. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotruradio.org. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotruradio. And we're nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners. Uh, well, across the Western states who are now dealing with this heat dome blamed on the climate crisis and internationally we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across the Caribbean region reeling now from the crisis in Haiti and a hit from Hurricane Elsa. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We're now going to turn 
our attention uh, to what is happening with Afghanistan. On Wednesday, April 14th, U.S. President Joe Biden announced that he plans to fully withdraw troops from Afghanistan by September 11th ending 20 years of U.S. military occupation. The occupation has taken the lives of at least 2,300 U.S. troops and more than 100,000 Afghanis, according to most estimates. Thousands more have been injured physically and mentally with physical disabilities and post-traumatic stress disorders. On October 7, 2001, the U.S. government invaded Afghanistan, claiming it was a part of the so-called war on terror. This took place just weeks after the September 11 attacks across um, um, in the East Coast, in which thousands of uh, people uh, were killed. Now, George W. Bush launched a military offensive against the Taliban and al-Qaeda that were based in Afghanistan. And not only did this offensive kill innocent Afghans, including women and children, it also festered into becoming an almost two-decade-long occupation and war. Let us go to a, a clip now um, on the, you know, on President Biden and what he had to say. So let me ask those who want us to stay: How many more? How many thousands more Americans' daughters and sons are you willing to risk? How long would you have them stay? Already we have members of our military whose parents fought in Afghanistan 20 years ago. Would you send their children and their grandchildren as well? Would you send your own son or daughter? After 20 years, a trillion dollars spent training and equipping hundreds of thousands of Afghan national security and defense forces. 2,448 Americans killed, 20,722 more wounded, and untold thousands coming home with unseen trauma to their mental health. I will not send another generation of Americans to war in Afghanistan with no reasonable expectation of achieving a different outcome. The United States cannot afford to remain tethered to policies, creating a response to a world as it was 20 years ago. We need to meet the threats where they are today. Today, the terrorist threat has metastasized beyond Afghanistan. So, we are repositioning our resources and adapting our counterterrorism posture to meet the threats where they are now, significantly higher in South Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. But make no mistake, our military and intelligence leaders are confident they have the capabilities to protect the homeland, and our interests from any resurgent terrorist challenge emerging or emanating from Afghanistan. All righty. And um, we're going to switch up the order a little bit, but also to let our listeners know we had hoped to be able to discuss the climate crisis uh, today. We did spend quite a bit of time and added in uh, guests in addition to our weekly roundtable on Haiti. So 
what I'd like to do is to propose moving the climate discussion for our roundtable next week. But Jackie Goldberg, um, you uh, were early training as a student, were part of the anti-war movement. Uh, your thoughts now on Afghanistan, the U.S. withdrawal, Afghanistan, a very impoverished uh, nation. And the question is, what did they gain? Is, is Afghanistan better off now? 20 years after this war. Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on this latest move? Well, you know, it's again the United States deciding that it could nation build somebody else's nation and decide uh, for them how their country will be run, decide for them their future, and now Afghanistan will have to make that decision itself. Uh, I supported uh, the withdrawal of American troops long before uh, Biden was elected president. Uh, it seemed clear to me that the Russians weren't able to make uh, Afghanistan into its image. Uh, before that, the English weren't able to make Afghanistan in its image, and the United States spent lives and dollars uh, doing that, uh, trying to make it in, in, in a nation-state in our, our image. Well, you know, it just, you just can't do that. Will there be, uh, and there already are, major Taliban changes? Yes. I think one of the big questions is what happens to women and girls. Uh, will they be able to go to school or not? Will they be back and wearing no more uh, casual clothes but wearing uh, head coverings and being uh, uh, really unable to do anything except uh, stay at home or be with an adult male? Uh, I think that we're going to see a lot of um, – the one thing I like the best about Biden's speech is he didn't try to say that we've accomplished our mission I mean, he kind of did that a little bit. He said, well, you know, what we wanted to do was to, was to uh, stop the uh, control of the Taliban in, in creating uh, uh, new places to, to have uh, terrorism start. Uh, and he said, you know, we got rid of uh, one of their major leaders, of course. So that happened under Obama. So I think what we really need to watch is whether or not the Taliban army, which is quite large and well uh, uh, well." Um, equipped, whether it will in fact continue to just give up to the Taliban without fighting. Uh, that may be the wisest thing for it to do. We don't know. But it is a decision of Afghani people. And it's a war that would not ever be won militarily. When you cannot win a war militarily, there is no reason to continue to send another generation of Americans there. And there's no reason for us any longer to pretend that somehow or another what we've been doing has made life easy or wonderful for the people of Afghanistan. Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. And uh, Dr. Horn, we're actually going to go to you next. Your thoughts. Well, the first thing we need to realize is that U.S. intervention in Afghanistan preceded October 2001. It actually goes back to the late 1970s and actually precedes Moscow's intervention in Kabul in December 1979. In fact, the purpose, as articulated by former National Security Advisor Brzezinski, was to bait the Soviet Union into a quagmire. The problem, amongst others, with that particular strategy was that it involved an alliance, de facto or otherwise, with religious zealots, who then stabbed the United States in the back and in the front by attacking New York and Washington in September 2001. And just as we have described the U.S. policy towards China as being disastrous over the decades, you can say the same thing with regard to Afghanistan. And with 
this obsession with Moscow uh, being at the root of both catastrophes. I think it's also fair to say that it's unclear to me what the United States' relationship with a post-Ghani regime will be in uh, Kabul. That is to say, I'm already expecting, like so many others, for the Ghani regime to collapse within six months to a year and the Taliban coming to power. But since the United States was allied with religious zealots before October 2001, it's not beyond imagining that they can be allied uh, after 2021. And this is particularly so if you look at your map and notice that Afghanistan borders on China, it borders on Iran, and so therefore the United States could profitably, that is to say U.S. imperialism could profitably, uh, work with a regime of religious zealots uh, in Kabul, irrespective of how they treat their own people, which then again comes back to the fact that one of the reasons why the Taliban is so well-equipped is because they're allies with U.S. allies, not only Pakistan, but the Gulf Arab monarchies, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And as long as the United States maintains good relations with those regimes, we cannot rule out some sort of reconciliation with the Taliban government in Kabul, with the Taliban government then uses the spearhead against both Iran and China. All righty. And uh, Laura Carlson, you'll have the thank you, Dr. Horn. You'll have the last word on this. Well, I thought this speech was kind of a hodgepodge because on the one hand, you have kind of a veiled critique of the war, fairly strongly saying that it's, I mean, very strongly saying that it's time to end it, which is good. I've also supported withdrawal for a long time, uh, but we didn't see the same kind of pointed critique of why the Obama-Biden government continued it for so long and even even increased it at certain points. And then on the other hand, you have this whole concept of just redistributing militarism, that no, what we're going to do, it's not that we think uh, it was wrong to try to control a nation through military occupation and we failed miserably at it, but that we're just going to redistribute our militarism in other focal points in the world, which was not reassuring. The problem is it's called the Monroe Doctrine in our region, but in general it's still this pattern of global imperialism and hegemony. And within that, in this region, the United States was fundamentally operating as just another one of the warlords, kind of a super warlord. And so now with the withdrawal, obviously that changes the balance of forces within the country. We have the surges of the Taliban. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that the military will never be a solution. So we have to be very careful that as things progress, um, there isn't a structured call for re-engagement on the military level to counteract, again, what's this changing balance of forces, which is inevitable with what's happening. Again, it is very important, I agree, to watch what happens to civilians. Women and children have been a disproportional number of the deaths in this type of military engagement, um, and, and their rights will be... Uh, will be at risk, certainly, the limited ones they've been able to achieve. But Afghan women are fighters. I mean, they, they have organizations. They know how to fight for their rights. And they have consistently named U.S. occupation as, uh, as a serious problem within 
within their own movement to gain their rights in the country. Uh, one of the things that 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 I noticed is a, a quote from the press saying the Afghan troops are surrendering in the hundreds, forfeiting troops of U.S. supplied equipment. Again, what we see uh, in in the name of of pushing for a certain outcome militarily, when there's that much engagement, when there's that much military sales and equipment going to a country, there's escalation that ends up happening on both sides. So what to do now, a roadmap for withdrawal in this situation? Now the U.K. is also withdrawing. We're definitely seeing changes in the region. I certainly wouldn't be able to say it. It's extremely complicated because it's such a mess, a mess that we ourselves created within an area that was already unstable, that already had its own dynamics of violence very deeply rooted there. But it's clear that the U.S. polls support it, um, both because of a sort of turning inward in U.S. policy, but also because of the abject failure of any kind of uh, even results in terms of U.S. interests, and uh, that there needs to be some community building. Uh, there's been a lot of mistakes made. It's a little disappointing, too, within the speech to hear that there's pretty much only an emphasis on American lives lost. That's offensive to the rest of the world, considering how many people were killed in Afghanistan and in other U.S. population, in other U.S. occupations around the world but it seems to resonate domestically. Um, I wish we could get beyond that kind of discourse and begin to value the lives of people that are killed by U.S. troops and U.S. occupations, you know, in other countries as well. But that's, I guess, to be expected. The phrase that it's the right and responsibility of the Afghan people alone to decide their future and how they want to run their country um, well, that's certainly to be lauded. It's too bad that it isn't more of a pillar of U.S. foreign policy and seems to only pop up when it's, when it's convenient rather than as a principle that would run throughout. Uh, right now, there's a lot to be unraveled. You know, there's, there, the contracts are leaving, contractors are leaving as well, and they're so responsible for the whole infrastructure and military especially, but all kinds of infrastructure there that it's not clear how the country can continue to receive um, even just the parts. You know, they're talking about problems with just even the contracts that exist. Um, so, so it's something we have to watch closely and try to figure out as a case study of how you transition from military logic of occupation to support for rebuilding this country as damaged as Afghanistan. Thank you for that, uh, Laura Carlson. The music indicated we are out of time. Another fascinating uh, roundtable. The total military expenditure in Afghanistan um, was $778 billion, enough money to feed, clothe, house, and educate all income people in the United States. There you have it. Um, the, I'd like to, today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our assistant, our producer, uh, Romero Funes. And if you'd like a copy of um, today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives.